Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. Now to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. Now, as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're going to continue our conversation about combat search and rescue, a mission we generally refer to as CSAR. Now, during episode 65, we explored this from an operational perspective with 23rd Wing Commander Colonel Russ Cook. Today, we're going to talk to team members involved with developing and producing the next generation helicopter for this mission, the HH-60 Whiskey. And the reason why we want to do this is simple. We operate aircraft for decades, so introducing a new type is a big deal, and it involves lots of different nuances and processes we don't always think about. Now, some might ask, what's the big deal? It's just another Blackhawk variant, and while it's technically true at a big picture level, the reality is that this aircraft, its mission systems, and its performance are fundamentally different than the older types it's replacing, the HH-60 Gulfs. In fact, it's so evolved that the Air Force competed this as a new acquisition effort and is putting the helicopter through a series of tests reserved for new types entering the operational world. So I think it's fair to say that the shadow between the HH-60 Golf and the HH-60 Whiskey may look the same on the ramp, but everything about the aircraft is different where it counts. This means airmen who fly this aircraft and those who count on it to get them home out of harm's way will face a better set of odds at successfully executing their missions and getting home. Now, let's face it, that's what really counts. As we explained in our last episode about this topic, this isn't just another mission. CSAR, or Combat Search and Rescue, is a moral imperative. Now, I want to talk about the elephant in the room up front. We started thinking about this episode several months ago. Since then, the fiscal year 2023 budget was released and it shows the HH-60 Whiskey line wrapping up early with just 75 helicopters delivered, not the 113 planned. Now, before we turn it over to our guests, I want to bring in Mitchell's executive director, Doug Berkey, to help set some of the context about all of this. Then we'll get on with our conversation about the new helicopter. So Doug, big picture, what's going on with this decision? Hey, Slick, good to see you, man. So here's the deal, and we cover this a lot on this program, but it's important to emphasize. This budget really reflected a set of impossible choices for the Air Force. I mean, you nailed it all the time, but the Air Force ranks below the other services in terms of funding. And so, you know, if you look at just Army alone, it's a trillion dollars more they've received since 9-11. And I get it, we're fighting two ground wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but now Air capabilities need a fundamental reset, and that is not occurring. And so we're not seeing hard decisions made within the department to prioritize where we've taken tremendous risk on the air side. So added to that, you've got four major factors that make this especially tough. First, mission demand for air power is soaring, but the pool of aircraft and crews is really small. So they're just getting beat up with constant deployments, and you can see this and, and how it affects the people. I mean, we've got this pilot shortfall that won't go away, and that's a very powerful indicator. You know, Second, the Space Force, which we're huge proponents of, is now 
a second major tax on the Department of Air Force budget. There really wasn't a budget increase to accommodate the stand-up of this new services and all the requirements that come with it. So it's really one budget, two services. So that further strains things. And then third, if you look at the recapitalization of the, the nuclear triad right now, it is really stressing things. We're doing all the legs of it at one time because they were deferred too long. We skipped one generation of recapitalization. So you either do it now or you sunset the capability. And these are nukes. You have to do it right. So that's spiking budget demand. Then fourth, on top of all this, we delayed modernization way too long on conventional capabilities. And that's why we have the oldest, smallest Air Force in, in our history. And so decade-old assets only hang together so long before they just structurally are done and, and we're there and kind of bring us to the point of this episode we're there right now with the current model of the search and rescue helicopter the hh60g golf models what we call it they flew the heck out of these in iraq and afghanistan they are beat and so there's only so much more you can ask out of their airframes which is why they've been looking at a new combat search and rescue helicopter since the early 2000s i mean we've known this is a requirement and we're only getting around to the buy right now. And this is an important one that we reset. Doug, I got it. Things are bad. So how does this affect the HH60 whiskey buy? Well, we're running out of money. So when they did the stack of budget priorities when they were planning the budget, knowing the limited resources they had, they first fully funded the nuclear triad recapitalization for the Air Force, that's two legs. The ICBMs and the bombers got it. That was important. That was the right decision. You work your way down the list, and you can see it in the numbers. They ran out of money about halfway through F-35. Everything else is extremely strained, and that's why they're cutting the HH-60W, the whiskey model, by, which is a replacement for the Gulf. And so, you know, the signs of this strain are across the board. I mean, look at Ukraine. We're flying the heck out of E3A waxes, E8J stars, MQ9 Reapers, and RQ4 Global Hawks. Yet those are the airframes that the Air Force is teeing up for cuts. And so this is really cannibalization. When you are actually cutting into bone that you're currently using today, you have no immediate backfill for it. The mission still exists, and yet you're trying to divest to get savings for the future. And it is a complete mess. So does that work? Not at all. We've looked at this a lot. And what happens is they normally will do a divestiture and then they end up either tasking the money elsewhere. So it kind of disappears into the bureaucracy or it gets taken to another service and all that. And this whole notion that you're going to retire old assets and somehow free up a ton of cash is unrealistic. I mean, do you really expect that you're going to you know, sell your 2000 Ford F-150 on Craigslist and somehow think this is going to translate to enough cash to buy a new truck? Yeah, I don't think so. It doesn't work that way. So you would have to retire dozens and dozens and dozens of aircraft to equal the cash required to get a new one online. So it just never adds. And this is where we're lying to ourselves. We need to just say we don't have enough money got it. This is what you gave me. This is what I can do with it. However, these other requirements still exist. That's called risk. Acknowledge it, own it. And if Congress wants to deal with it as your oversight entity, let them. But don't tell me that it's all okay because it's not. These airmen are really taking way too much risk right now. All right, Doug, get me back to CSAR. So you add up all these variables and the Air Force is out of cash. Right now we're seeing it where they're trying to rationalize these decisions publicly. But at the end of the day, they're taking way too much risk. They're out of money. So for these helicopters, the HH-60 Whiskey model, to reset the CSAR fleet, they were supposed to buy about 113, but they're only going to buy 75, and they're going to truncate the buy at that point. And they're saying, look, you're not going to be flying these aircraft over downtown Beijing in China. I got it. I agree with that. 
you know, leadership isn't wrong when they say this. However, modern CSAR is going to take a very layered approach where you will need these assets, even for a Pacific scenario. You're also going to need them for other operations that occur, whether it's in the Middle East or Europe. I mean, let's look what's going on in Ukraine right now. Those sorts of wars are still going to occur. And you use them in peacetime all the time. I mean, look at the one stationed in Alaska and the, the type of work they do to support the, the folks up there. And in that kind of climate extreme, if they don't get you fast, you're dead. So the final point I want to make here is it's not just about the airframes. It's about protecting the people. CSAR crews are one of the most highly trained set of individuals in the entire U.S. Air Force. What they do is beyond difficult. And if you take away too much iron you're going to put too much strain on that community. It will collapse. And they have already been strained way too hard for the last 20 years on back-to-back deployments with aging equipment. You cut what they've got further, this is not going to hang together. Even if you decide that you want different types of mission assets in the future for the long-range CSAR mission, you still need these people. You have got to keep them something to keep them viable and in play for a while. And that's where you got to bring on the iron on board. And nothing is cheaper than just finishing out the buy you have. We've seen this time and time again. You know, look at F-22 or B-2. They cut the buys too early. The requirement's still there. Well, a few years later, you got to start a new program, which is always more expensive, drags out more time delays and all of that. you got to limp along old equipment. Just do the buy the way you need to upfront acknowledge reality for where it is. I think this is really where we are with CSAR. All right, Doug, I get it. So what's next? Yep. So right now, this goes to Congress. They've got to sort this out. And from our standpoint, we just need to be open about the risk that is being taken. I don't think this is prudent. I think especially about taking care of these career fields, we have got to double down. At the end of the day, this isn't about airplanes or helicopters, however you want to put it. This is about protecting airmen who are down, that need rescue, and if they are not rescued, they face capture or death. That is an option that is fundamentally a moral imperative. We've got to stand behind it. All right. Thanks, Doug. Now, time will tell how this plays out. And with that, I'd like to turn over to our guests today. Uh, As I mentioned in the introduction, it's actually a rare event when the service introduces a new type of aircraft. So we want to hear from the folks who are actually building the HH-60 Whiskey uh, and learn about what it's like to tackle this sort of challenge. So we've got Rum Morgan. Hey, Slick. Stephen Hill. Hey, Slick. How are you today? doing great and and last but not least jim brandt good morning like thanks for having me and jim thanks for being here and you know everybody here from the sikorsky team uh, on behalf of mitchell can't say thanks enough uh for having you here today Okay, so I want to begin this conversation by emphasizing that an effort of this magnitude obviously demands a robust team. So can you explain your expansive roles uh, working on this program? And Steve, I know you're the program director, so let's get started with you and then we'll go to Rum and then Jim. Yeah, thank you, Slick. Uh, I'm Stephen Hill. I'm the program director for CRH. Uh, I'm responsible for the design, the development, the production, uh, and the sustainment and training for the aircraft. Thanks, like uh, Rum Morgan. I'm the director of Air Force Business Development for Sikorsky. Been doing this for nine years. Prior to that, I was with the Air Force uh, Combat Rescue Pilot flying H3s and H60s. Yes, like uh, it's uh, Jim Brandt. Uh, I'm the director of assembly and flight operations up here in Stratford. Uh, I have all the production models that we build at this point, but I've been with the Air Force Combat Rescue Program since day one when we started building the first development aircraft in 2017. We currently have aircraft 25 on the line, so I have a lot of experience in this model. 
But yeah, what an amazing group. Again, thank you for being here. And I'm sure, Rum, at some point we'll have to talk some some of your flying stories as well as, as somebody who's flown uh, these types of, of aircraft. So I really would love to dig deeper, if you guys don't mind, uh, especially in light of the recent budget decision uh, regarding the imperative for the new CSR helicopter. You know, the Air Force has been on a path, you know, on this path for many years. What's really driving the requirement? And why is the AJ-60 Golf increasingly stretched too thin to meet the tasks that are assigned to it? And, you know, we're talking about airframes that are simply worn out, uh, you know, or is it an issue of, you know, the evolving mission that CSR has? Thanks, Lake. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, you know, first and foremost, the X-60G was uh, bought in the 1980s and the early 90s. Um, you know, that aircraft originally had about a 30-year uh, life, 8,000 hours. Most of those aircraft are already exceeding that. So we're in a desperate need of trying to get an aircraft to address the low availability rates, combat effectiveness rates. But also, the, the original fleet was only 112 aircraft. It was always an, a low density, high demand aircraft. And with the reduced availability rates, that force structure and that capability is being stretched further and further. So getting a new aircraft on the line, um, having it available to meet the mission uh, is essential for the Air Force uh, to be able to provide the capability they're tasked with. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we had Colonel Cook, commander of Moody Air Force Base, uh, on us on a past episode, uh, and he talked about it a little bit. But can you really jump in to what makes the H860 Whiskey different than the G model that it's going to replace? Yes, like, you know, there's, a, I would say, three basic things I'd like to cover on that. Um, first and foremost is just the structure of the aircraft. It's not a standard Blackhawk. Um, it is uh, starts down its own, its own production line as a separate, unique aircraft. And first of that is uh, the larger fuel tanks. It's got twice the internal fuel that the 60G has, resulting in a crash-worthy system. Uh, the air refueling makes it uh, that much more uh, uh, extended range. Um, this, this aircraft has enhanced survivability, tremendous increase from the 60G. Radar warning receivers upgraded, the missile warning system, the laser warning system, the upturned engine exhaust, reducing the heat signature, and you've got enhanced uh, flares and chaff, making this aircraft much more survivable than previous generations of helicopter. And then you add on top of that, the tactical mission kit. This is a digital cockpit, digital aircraft, fully integrated avionics and this defensive system. So it really fits into the joint all demand operations and it results in a workload reduction. So it's going to be a safer aircraft, more reliable aircraft and a trend tremendously more survivable aircraft. Yeah, Roman, just to, to build on what you just said, I mean, when, when you look at the aircraft and its baseline, um, you know, it's got better high and hot, hot hover performance than its predecessor. In addition to that, you mentioned um, the full integration of the software, but this aircraft also is a fighting system and it has um, three different weapons uh, that it can use, two 50 cals and one uh, 7.62 cal weapons that really give a variety of capability for it to go off and service emissions that it has. Um, due to some additional environmental requirements, it's got a better filtered uh, system to go off and handle the cooling system for the, the tactical mission system that we have. And because of the greater electrical demands, it's got a, a bigger and stronger APU generator as well. So with the additional redundant power. So across the board, um, the, the system is much more capable than its predecessor. Yeah, just uh, just like Rum was saying, you know, a you know, across the, the Air Force customer, um, 
the same applies for building aircraft on the production floor. Uh, the difference I see from this and, you know, 31 years in this business, other development programs, it, it was just extremely well thought out and planned from the beginning. Uh, we, of course, were able to leverage any lessons learned in our success on the age 60 over 40 years. But this, this aircraft is clearly a unique aircraft. Um, as a matter of fact, it's about 35% more unique than a basic Blackhawk uh, between the uh, unique tactical mission kit, the larger aerial refuel system, uh, all the survivability items, uh, as well as things in the cabin like the uh, gun system and the litter system. And uh, it, it really was, and we'll talk probably later about the uh, digital technology we introduced into the factory, but it really was 100% integrated right up front. I've been on development programs where we build a basic Blackhawk and then go back and mod them. And that was exactly what we did on the Gulf. We did build a legacy Blackhawk and it went through several modifications stages and it just adds to the time it takes to build a helicopter and it's uh, a ton more expensive. So again, just like Ron was saying, this is a hundred percent integrated. This team knew exactly what they wanted to do from uh, day one. Yeah, that's, that's great to point out. And, you know, I, I think now that we understand uh, the need and what the, the new aircraft has to offer, uh, I think maybe take a little bit of a step back to bring our audience up to speed on how a program is actually launched and executed. So I've got to ask, what were the major building blocks that were in play to net a new helicopter? Uh, I know the Air Force decided it needed to reset a portion of its fleet. So where did it go from there? Yeah, thanks, Lick. Uh, yeah, the, this process of bringing on a new aircraft is very methodical um, and purpose-driven. You know, recognizing that the, the original 60G had a 30-year life, uh, the Air Force started in the early 2000s to look at what needed to be done to replace that. If it needed to replace it, replaced, or if it was new tactics, techniques, procedures, or modified. Uh, that starts with uh, an analysis of alternatives to look at different options. Uh, from there, they start developing, you know, requirements, you know, what is the service not meeting uh, that present day? Uh, what capabilities do they need looking into the future? And they follow the uh, the DOD process, the JSIS process, the Joint Capability Integration Development System. Um, from there, they develop the process, they take it to the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, the JROC, um, and then they proceed down the, uh, to start engaging with industry with uh, uh, request for information, request for proposals, um, and then it results in a uh, in in working towards a contract, which was signed in 2014 for uh, the combat rescue helicopter. Um, and to date, um, we're starting to deliver aircraft. We've delivered 18. Uh, uh, 19 will be delivered the first week in May, uh, and that's the the process. It's long and drawn out, but it does result in a in a new increased capable aircraft. Yeah, and just to build on Ron's, you know, comments, I mean, you, you think about that system and then you have to go through all these reviews once you get the contract, right? There's a preliminary design review where you sit down and you say, okay, you know, what is the system supposed to go do? How do we go off and make sure that we're doing that? Then we have this CDR activity that we go through, which is our critical design review, which makes sure that we've kind of got those detailed component levels. And then there's a series of reviews that get us to test. 
um, there's a first flight milestone that we got to get through that we, we put the aircraft through its initial paces. And then there's all this other activity associated with the training and development of the, of the, of the aircraft. So there's a series of milestones to go prove out at every step that the aircraft is meeting the, the, the design and the requirements that we have to go off and check off against to say that the aircraft is meeting the requirements that, um, that, that the Air Force has laid out uh, in, in the contract. So there, there is a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of activities that are associated with it just to get it to the point where it is today. Uh, and um, just, uh, just a tremendous team effort, not only from you know the, the, the Sikorsky team, the, the government and the, the helicopter program office, our supply base, you know, all the training, the crew. So there's a, there's a real joint effort to go get the, the aircraft done. It's a tremendous orchestrated effort across the board. Well, right now the H860 Whiskey is in test. So can you walk us through what that looks like? And for our audience, there are two main lanes for tests. We have developmental tests and then operational tests. Yeah, so so let me take that one. Um, so on the developmental test side, again, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, there's a variety of tests, all leading to you know flight tests. And with this product alone, we we had over a thousand hours of flight tests. That that flight test effort is complete. But in order to get there, uh, we had to go through a variety of um, activities associated with it. For instance, we had to do extreme weather testing, and that was done at Eglin, where we had to take the aircraft from 120 to minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit to go off and make sure that the components worked at that temperature and all the electronics worked at that temperature. We had to go off and do testing around aerial refueling to go prove out that we can go do it. We had to do weapons testing. Um, so we had to go off and literally take the aircraft, put it to its paces and fire um, the, the, the guns on the range to make sure that not only that the guns fire and fire effectively, but that the Air Force personnel could actually use it based on the requirements that we have. And then that testing led us to some additional development test activity for the, the avionics and the, uh, the the operational software, as Ron talked about earlier, that tactical mission kit. So we went through development testing there. So as we completed all those efforts and those efforts have been essentially completed, we get into now what we call operational test. And the Air Force is now in the process uh, of entering what we call IOT&E, that's initial operating test and evaluation. And what that test framework is designed to do is to talk about and understand not only did we make sure the product worked, but is it suitable? Can the, the SMAS operate it in a way that's effective? Can the pilots fly it in a way that's effective? And we're continuing to get good feedback from those tests. Um, but we're continuing to wait to see if there are things that we need to go off and, and work on and continue to go off and improve upon during that process. Well, can you give us an example of uh, any of the big things that you've learned during this phase? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple of different areas. Like, for instance, during developmental tests, one of the things that we learned, uh, we, we had a couple of areas that we, we had um, some challenges with. One of them was in the areas of our guns. Uh, and getting those to work on the system. And the other was in our radar warning receiver, which is the APR-52. In uh, that system, during development tests at China Lake, uh, we discovered that um, there were some um, concerns the pilot had about its performance, some issues around uh, you know, lag time, uh, how, it, it, how it represented threats. So we took that information, made some modifications and improvements, um, put those modification improvements out for some additional tests, uh, which were very successful uh, earlier this year. And the Air Force gave us a thumb up that um, now we can go take that capability and put it into our um, our, our production baseline. So, so that capability is there. Same thing with the guns. We had three gun configurations. Uh, one of the gun configurations, the GAO-18, had some problems with dispersion. And what that means is just think of it like uh, you're, you're trying to shoot down range and you're trying to hit a target the size of a coffee can. And, and we saw er areas where 
we weren't exactly hitting within it, that coffee can target requirement. So we had to go back and really look at the design, see how we can go off and strengthen a design to go off and improve upon it. I worked with our suppliers to go off and go do that and was able to come up with a, a design that met the requirements. We've now flight tested that design, um, got that one approved, and are in the process of rolling that into our production configuration. And so those are two of the things that we learned during this developmental test to help us improve the product as it's going forward. All right, so how do these lessons learned feed back into the aircraft that will ultimately come off the line as operational examples? Yeah, so so we take that feedback and we we literally go off and put it into you know a process to go get it approved to get put on the aircraft. There's a cut in schedule that we determine uh, when it's ready to be cut in, and we then go integrate those new solutions into the configuration. Like I mentioned before, uh, from the development test aspect, um, you know, on the the radar warning receiver. The things that we learned at those the developmental tests uh, actually were then con- taken and put into a configuration that was then um, uploaded into our new operational configuration uh, that was that, that is now the, the 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 production configuration for the aircraft. The same thing with the guns that we we talked about previously. As we learned from those guns, we defended the development tests. We got those development activities approved. That configuration was now cut into the production line. Uh, and we'll go off and um, incorporate those uh, those updates into the production uh, aircraft and also do you know, what we call both forward fit going forward, how many aircraft we're going to do, and then also lay out a plan to go off and recover any aircraft that, that did not get those initial configuration changes um, to, to make sure that the aircraft and, and that the fleet has uh, the capability that it needs. Well, you know, and Jim, I've got to turn to you on this. So while this testing is going on, you're managing the product line or the production line. So what is that like? And how do you manage your facility and your workforce to meet these deliveries? So Slick, number one was uh, just the upfront planning. We've already mentioned the uh, fully integrated design and the vision from day one. So so that was really good for my shop. Uh, It wasn't any real major configuration changes along the way. So that made it easier. Uh, I've already touched upon, you know, the people that um, build these aircraft are Blackhawk experts. So they had that comfort level of getting into this. And, you know, unlike different legacy lines, the, the real advantage that my team had was the new digital technologies that are out there. In particular, all the work instructions we have in the shop are on the computer. It's a system called Right Hemisphere. And the design team is able to digitize the two-dimensional legacy ink and mylar blueprints, for, namely for the structure and dynamic components. And then the 35% of this aircraft, which is unique, was all digitally designed from the start. And the great part is that what the engineer sees on his digital drafting board is what the union assembler in the shop sees. So they're both on the same page. And one of the key things, and before we even got an aircraft on the final assembly line in early 2017, was a concept called build before you build, which was taking this digital technology, viewing it on the computer using virtual goggles in our 
virtual reality room and it was technicians, designers, maintainers, everybody two years in advance building the digital prototype combat rescue helicopter. And really what that allowed us to do is avoid the trial and error that we see when aircraft start showing up on final assembly. So that, that was a home run right there. And the 3D technology is portable. We use laptops, we use tablets, we bring the, the blueprint right onto the aircraft. Um, we have the ability through this system to talk to engineers wherever they are in the country, even if they're not on the shop floor, we're able to get answers on issues. Uh, we've hired about 100 new technicians since June of 2021, just last year. It's taken these new employees, some of them right out of tech high schools, two weeks to understand this new system. When you look at the unique portions of this aircraft, we're seeing learning curves of 87% versus a 92% learning curve that we see on uh, legacy projects. You know, we talk about digital technology, but the, the last one, this is big for me, is uh, it's more the human side. Again, I can't stress enough the expertise that we have from legacy uh, Blackhawk programs that allows my employees to have a great comfort level with the combat rescue aircraft. But, but the big thing is this aircraft is cool. And the teamsters in my shop love working on it. The fuel, the, tact, uh, the tactical mission system, the communication system, the avionics suite, the chaff system, uh, what's going on in the cabin with the, uh, the gunners, floors and litters and PV screens and just really understand the survivability capabilities. They love the experience of installing it. They know that this aircraft is a lifesaver and, uh, you know, just working on a cool aircraft that's, uh, makes my job a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to ask uh, Stephen and Jim if you can talk to us about what makes the helicopter production line uh, unique beyond what you've talked about, because as, as I understand it, the tolerances have to be even tighter given the physical demands of a rotary uh, system. So um, I'll take that. Uh, you know, what we did recognize right from the start was with a 35 percent uh, more of a build than a Blackhawk, uh, 22,600 unique parts. There was no way we were going to be able to run this aircraft down a typical Blackhawk line. We made the decision to dedicate uh, no one separate area for the combat rescue aircraft. It's about a 10-minute walk from the main assembly line. Uh, we have a six position line we're going to have the ability by the end of 2022 to expand it to nine positions just to help us if we need that surge capability we run three shifts there's 12 managers dedicated in this uh, isolated spot we have 125 technicians the support staff is on site We've developed uh, kits to deliver parts just in time, uh, dedicated cribs for tooling and, and parts. Since 2015, uh, Sikorsky has invested in capital 
that includes creating this facility, a heavy investment on the computers for the digital technology. We have a facility, facility dedicated with 26 machines to 3D uh, printing. We're able to develop tooling, sample parts if we need them for this program. So really it comes down to select, you know, we have, have a uh, dedicated area, uh, a dedicated support staff, and that coupled with the experience of the assemblers and the uh, digital technology, uh, it's really made uh, this program much easier to produce. Uh, the first aircraft in 2017 took 200 days to build. We built that battleship build. And as I said, now we're at six positions and we're moving an aircraft off this final assembly one per month. Yeah. And, and just to, just to build on that, I mean, what, what that gives the customer is just tremendous confidence that not only can we put the aircraft together, it's coming off with high quality, but, but most importantly, we, we, we get a, a product that um, is very consistent aircraft to aircraft. And I think that Jim's team has just continued to do a phenomenal job and we can get very strong feedback from the government and from the customer around the product that they're getting. I'll say, I, I can talk a little bit about the rotating hardware. Um, just the, the fact that, you know, one of the, 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 the things that, you know, you talked about relative to tolerances is, um, you know, when you have rotating hardware, like, you know, gearboxes and, um, you know, the, the, the rotors there, uh, they have to be built and you know, they have to be designed to the strictest of tolerances because again, you cannot handle, um, you know, major variations in those, um, in those components because those major variations drive wear uh, and it, it drives um, a lack of performance. So, so for those systems to operate on a helicopter, they have to be extremely tightly designed. And that means that the work the team has to go do to build those gearboxes and to build those, um, those those rotor heads is to the most exacting specifications that you can possibly imagine, uh, and and Sikorsky has made significant investments uh, to go off and have that capability inherent in our facilities, so that we can go off and accomplish the, those those activities, and, and that's what makes building helicopters really difficult and really unique, uh, and that's why I think you know Sikorsky has continued to be a, a a really preeminent provider of that capability across the world because we have made those investments in that tight tolerance areas where it really matters. Yeah, I appreciate that, Stephen. And one of the things, you know, obviously when you see these aircraft enter the operational inventory, how does this feedback loop work with the customer? I'm sure you get crews that will discover things that they like or areas where they want improvement. So how do you uh, get the information and apply it? Yeah, you know, so there, there's a couple of ways. I mean, one, you know, I've had the the, the honor of going out to the bases myself during the, the DT period. So I, I got a chance to go visit the, the, the site of Moody. And I also got a chance to go visit the site of Kirtland and actually fly uh, in the aircraft during a mission, a night training mission. Uh, and one thing I'll tell you is that the pilots and the um, the SMAs are not shy. Um, so so they do give us feedback. And that that's more kind of the, hey, look, the, the, the floors don't have the amount of grit that we need. We, we need that to be more, to, to provide us more traction. So that's one feedback mechanism, just going out to the, to the fleet. Uh, then we have other mechanisms where we have deficiency reports where the, 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 the pilots or the Air Force will go off and give us some feedback around a variety of different areas. Some of them might be perceived as um, 
hey, we'd like to see the, the, the guns work this way, or maybe we'll get feedback that says, hey, we, we, we like this component over here. So we, we do have mechanisms to get that feedback. And that's really what the, the, the development tests and the operational, the, the IOT&E uh, activities are all about, is really getting those feedback so we can put that into the capability, put that, put that capability into the, uh, to the aircraft itself. Awesome. Well, you know, we are really running tight on time as, as we usually do on this podcast because there's such great information out there. But I want to get your thoughts on the evolving nature of the CSAR mission itself, because, you know, Colonel Cook talked about this and I know Doug hit on it a little bit. But how do you all see it changing? You know, peer competition is a factor and we obviously can't ignore that. And given the, the ranges and the threats involved in the Pacific, you know, obviously that's another tactical problem. But we still have other contingencies uh, that will demand this skill. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks. Like, I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, the, the rescue mission has continuously evolved from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, and most recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it may look the same. You got the, some of the same components, helicopter, fixed wing support, air refueling, and the ground team with the PJs, but it has continuously changed. Tactics change, procedures change. Um, and the ability to to integrate into the joint warfighter system is really driving efficiencies and making the rescue much more capable. But the Pacific will uh, open new challenges, um, requiring longer range air refueling missions, pre-positioning of aircraft, and drive uh, in, uh, more requirements for joint coordination and maybe maybe partnering with uh, allied. Uh, nations one thing it will be is uh, longer longer uh, range rescues and possibly increase from the golden hour to maybe a golden day uh, but that's things that the air force is going to have to work through but uh you know that not all uh rescue missions are going to be tied to a near pier in the pacific i mean just look what's going on in uh, europe that africa middle east uh, there's always going to be demand for the rescue capability and this and this uh mission the, uh, the H60G has always been a low density, high demand asset. There's always been more demand than the than the than what the Air Force can provide, um, and the Air Force, uh, you know, needs at least 112 aircraft. And I'm not sure how they're going to meet the need with reduced quantity. And I agree, you know, wholeheartedly with what Doug was was talking about earlier. Um, but the DoD does have the more imperative to leave no one behind. Um, and we do have a shared goal on that with Sikorsky. I mean, we've been, uh, uh, since 1923 with Igor Sikorsky introduction of the helicopter, you know, we've been pioneering flight solutions that bring people home everywhere, every time. So we're almost a hundred years and, uh, we're very proud to be part of, uh, the rescue mission supporting the air force and, uh, and wish the air force will be able to continue this going forward. The, the big thing for me is just, just to kind of close it out is that, you know, look, we are 100% focused on the mission here. Uh, what I am most excited about is, you know, with working with our customer who is incredibly demanding um, because, again, we, 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 they have to be to ensure that we get the product out that we need to. Um, but, you know, one thing I will say is, you know, me, the, the Air Force team, we're, we're all what we call mission-focused make sure the warfighter gets the capability that they need. Uh, and we're continuing to be excited and proud about the product we're producing, proud about the relationship that we have with our customer and the ultimate end customer, the warfighter, and just excited about producing this product. So um, we want to continue that and continue to go work with the Air Force in any way they deem required to go off and get the product out to the warfighters as quickly and effectively as possible. 
Yeah, and, and as, as a guy who flew fighters, thank goodness I didn't need uh, a rescue mission, but uh, always slept well and flew well knowing that uh, we had, you know, really brave uh, American airmen, you know, at the ready. So can't say thank you all enough. And, you know, unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I just want to say thanks again for being here uh, from all of you from Sikorsky. Thanks, Slick. Thank you, Slick. Thanks again, Slick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.